Hey guys, it's the True Crime Taurus Hannah here with another episode. I know it's been a minute since I uploaded a video last. There's been a lot of changes in my life in the last few months, but I am back and I'm going to try to post more consistently for you guys. Another reason it took so long to post is because this is a very long and detailed case. You guys, this case took over 30 years to solve, and it's a case from Indiana, my home state, and it takes place in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and it gives me chills because my sister and I used to stay with our grandparents during the summer in Fort Wayne, Indiana, during the time that a lot of this was unfolding. Knowing what I know now, it just makes me sick. So if you guys haven't guessed it yet, we are going to be discussing the murder of April Tinsley. This case begins in April of 1988 in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is in northeast Indiana. Eight-year-old April Tinsley lived in Fort Wayne. She was in first grade. She had all brothers, a couple older brothers and one younger brother, and she was this cute little girl with curly blonde hair. She lived with both of her parents and her siblings. On April 1st of 1988, it was actually Good Friday, so April had the day off of school. She wanted to go play with a friend who lived down the street from her, so she asked her mother Janet if it was alright to walk to her friend's house, and she was on her way. That day, it was a little bit chilly, and it looked like it was going to rain, so at approximately 3.30 in the afternoon, April left her friend to stop by a different friend's house and grab her umbrella that she had supposedly left there. This was all just a block or two from April's home. When dinner time was approaching, April's mother Janet began to wonder where she was because she hadn't come home yet. So, she walks over to April's friend's house to see where she was, and they tell her that April left to go get her umbrella, and they assume that she went home afterwards. Janet had no idea about what friend had this umbrella, and had no idea where April could have gone, because, you guys, April's friend lived so close that you could see her house if you stood outside of April's house, which is why Janet was fine with April walking the short distance by herself anyways. At this point, Janet gets really worried and follows her mom instincts and calls the police because she has no idea where else April could have gone. Within an hour, over a hundred police officers and neighbors in the community are outside trying to find April. It doesn't take police long to call this an abduction because a witness quickly comes forward saying that they saw a child who matched April's clothing and physical description being put into the back of a faded blue pickup truck by a white male in his 30s who had brown hair and an unshaved face. And they say that this was before 4 o'clock. They eventually made up a sketch of what they think this guy looks like, but it's super generic looking. I've seen this picture of the sketch, and it literally could have been any guy in the 80s. He had longish hair, a straight nose, he was thin. There was nothing particularly outstanding about this guy at all. So they're now looking for this man in addition to looking for April. They didn't have to look for April for very long because her body was discovered by a jogger three days later at about three in the afternoon on April 4th, 1988. The location of her body was only about 20 minutes away from Fort Wayne in Spencerville, Indiana. She was found lying in a grass ditch on the side of the road. She was clothed in the same outfit that she was last seen wearing, but was missing one shoe. Upon later inspection, they noticed that her underwear were inside out, which contributed to their fears that she may have been sexually assaulted, because it shows that she was likely undressed and then redressed with her underwear inside out. 
There's another piece of information that wasn't released until much later, but I want to go ahead and mention it here so that you all can get an image of what the scene really looked like and how, I guess, careless her attacker was about having everything out in the open. It's a theme that you'll be able to see throughout the case, but when they inspected the scene where her body was found, there was also a plastic Sears bag laying next to her that had a phallic-shaped sex toy inside of it. The autopsy later confirmed that April had in fact been sexually assaulted and that suffocation was her cause of death. The autopsy report stated that she had been dead for approximately 24 to 48 hours at the time that they found her, so she was likely killed around 48 hours or so after her kidnapping. Her autopsy also suggested that she had been killed in another location and then dumped at the location where she was found. They said that her body had to have been dumped no more than four hours before being found. So this would have April's body being dumped on the side of the road around 11 or 12 o'clock. The timing of everything and the proximity of her body to where she was abducted rose suspicion that the killer had to be someone local. They were able to collect DNA from the crime scene, but there wasn't much they could do with it at the time. Indiana, at the time, didn't have any great labs where DNA could be tested easily, so the samples were sent elsewhere to get tested. In the meantime, police continued to look for witnesses and respond to leads. They got a lot of tips about a couple different men in the area that resembled the composite eyewitness sketch, but after questioning them, they weren't any closer to finding April's killer. They do, however, go ahead and take the DNA from about five different men to be tested, just to make sure. In addition to these men, police continued to interview all local sex offenders and men in April's life tirelessly. With no luck or any new trails, they still believed that the killer was local. He was too comfortable with the area not to be local. He took her just blocks from her own home, felt comfortable enough to likely snatch her right off the street, and then dump her a few days later also in the same area. He had to have known Fort Wayne well enough to know when a lot of people would be out or where to dump her so that he would have at least a few hours to get away. With no leads that led them anywhere, the case started to go cold. But then, two years after the murder, in 1990, police were confronted with a message. On the side of a barn in the same general area where April's body was found, written in what looked like black crayon, was this. I kill 8-year-old April Marie Tinsley. I will kill again. Ha ha. I have a picture of the barn posted on my Instagram page for those of you who want to see what it looked like. The handwriting, the misspellings, and the overall way that the message was written is something that will come up again and again in this case. For starters, the handwriting looked like that of a toddler. With uneven letter sizing and spacing, the grammar was also off. He said, I killed instead of I killed at the beginning. The message also looked like it had been traced on the barn first with a pencil or something and then gone over again in something darker like a crayon, but none of the lines matched up between the tracing and the thicker lettering. This would imply that whoever wrote the message probably came to the barn more than once, again implying that it's someone local. There's also a rumor, and there's no photo of this, and I haven't seen any officials confirm this anywhere. But there's a rumor that in faint writing above the message, it said something along the lines of, did you guys ever find her other shoe? Remember, she was found missing one shoe. But like I said, this was never confirmed. The whole barn message, of course, could have just been some prank, but police had a good feeling that this was related and it was something that officials could not ignore. But as quickly as the case became hot again, it went ice cold. 
April's case would go silent for another 14 years. During that time, there were no DNA matches, no arrests made, and no more new evidence. 16 years after April's murder, and 14 years after the barn message in 2004, more messages were found all around the Fort Wayne area. Notes began to pop up all over town. Notes written in the same sloppy, uneven handwriting that was seen on the barn. With the same tone, grammatical inconsistencies, but this time the messages were much more chilling than the confession on the barn. Even worse, many of the notes were found either in the front yards of homes where little girls lived, or attached to little girls' bicycles. They all contained essentially the same message, so here's just one example of the notes left. Hi honey, I've been watching you. I am the same person that kidnap and rape and kill April Tinsley. You are my next victim. If you don't report this to police and I don't see this in the paper tomorrow or on the local news at 7, I will blow up you. Okay, so there's a lot to say about that. First, how terrifying it must have been to discover a note like this. Putting myself in the shoes of, say, a parent in 2004, finding this note, aside from the fact that it was found on my child's bicycle, it's very threatening, and it says that he's watching my child and calling her honey, but it's also someone confessing to a murder that happened 16 years ago. Also, I can't describe how confusing these notes are simply by the way that they're written. I'll post a photo of this note on my Instagram page as well so you can see, but there are misspellings galore. This time, the apparent killer misspells April's first and last name, even though it was spelled correctly on the barn, and the message is all one sentence. In one string of thoughts, the killer says he's stalking other girls, confessing again to April's murder, threatens the reader's life, demands his note goes to the press as soon as possible, He doesn't include the demand for press attention in every note, but he always says that he's been watching these girls and often says that they'll be his next victim. These notes didn't show up in any particular order. They just appeared in Fort Wayne. One of the notes was found inside of a mailbox, and like I said, the rest were on bicycles. But the notes aren't the only thing that showed up, though I wish they were. Sometimes accompanied with the notes were Polaroids showing who we assume to be the killer or whoever is leaving the notes, only from the waist down. In some of these Polaroids, he's laying down naked, and all you can see is his genitals. In other photos, he is again, from the waist down, masturbating. And sometimes accompanied with these notes are used condoms. Remember earlier in the episode when I said that the killer was really careless? This is what I was talking about. Because even though officials weren't able to connect the DNA collected in 1988 to a specific person, They were able to collect DNA in 2004 from the condoms left with the notes, match them up to the samples in 1988, and confirm that it was in fact April's killer who was leaving the notes. They were also able to conclude, assuming that the Polaroids were the killer as well, that he is a white male who is circumcised. There were witnesses who also said that they remember seeing a forest green pickup truck parked on the side of the road at one point, which is still not a lot to go off of. But it continues to strongly suggest that this guy is local. This is still happening in the same area. And now we know that this guy can walk up to someone's house and not look out of place or suspicious at all. Clearly this guy is someone who likes attention and somehow gets off on the wow factor of knowing that young girls will come across these notes along with the items left with them. Yet again, as quickly as the case came back into the light, 
officials found themselves at a dead end. In 2009, the FBI brings in the help of the Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team, which also goes by CARD. CARD includes members of the Behavioral Analysis Unit, which profiles killers and looks into the psyche of a killer and what drives them to commit heinous acts, along with members of the Crimes Against Children Unit and the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. CARD typically doesn't work on cold cases, which April's case was considered cold at the time, but they will sometimes work on cold cases if they feel there's enough evidence to potentially break the case. So, with the help of the Fort Wayne Police and Indiana Police, CARD was able to make up a full profile of what kind of guy this killer is. Along with the profile, they released a statement saying that one of the largest advantages they had in this case is that the killer has been displaying his behavior for almost 20 years at this point. This is a lot more evidence and a lot more behavior to base their profile on than what most cases have. Their official profile, and I won't read their entire official profile, it's really long, but I'm going to read a pretty good chunk of it. So their official profile states that their killer is likely in his late 40s or 50s in 2004, and he is officially labeled as a preferential child sex offender, meaning that he has a persistent desire and sexual interest for children, and in this case, children who have not yet entered puberty, specifically between the ages of 5 and 10. This type of person would still be able to interact with older children and adults, but his attention would much prefer the company of young children, and his sexual desires and fantasies revolve around young children. They stated that there's a possibility he could be married, but preferential child sex offenders most often are not. If he did have a long-term relationship with somebody or was married, his partner would be able to suspect his sexual desires for children, but may not fully understand or want to think of the extent to which his desires would go. This kind of killer may even enter into a relationship that would give him access to a young girl. For example, he may date or have a relationship with someone in a young girl's family, or he may work in a place that would allow him to be close to little girls. He would enjoy spending time in places where little girls would be, such as parks or pools. If he were in a situation where there are little girls present, they would have all of his attention, or he would go out of his way to interact with them. They said that it would be likely that he might make an inappropriate comment to or about little girls that would raise concern if anyone were to hear, such as saying that a little girl is sexy. He may also be known to be inappropriate or socially awkward with adults as well. He's also likely to collect things that support his preferences. Since he has desires for little girls, he would likely collect photos of little girls, child pornography, or items that remind him of his desires, like little girl clothing, or girly toys like Barbies or dolls. And finally, unlike serial killers, once a preferential child sex offender makes the move to kidnap, rape, and kill, he doesn't necessarily have to rise to that level in future offenses. He may resort to voyeurism or exposing himself, or, you guessed it, leaving obscene notes or sexual images for a child to find. Card goes on to propose theories on why there have been gaps in the killer's activity. A gap between 1988 and 1990, from 1990 to 2004, and then again after 2004. He could have been in prison or in a hospital or a care facility. He could have already had access to a victim consistently that satisfied his desire through a relationship with an adult. He could have relocated 
or he could have passed away after 2004. They also support that the killer has shown activity exclusively in northeast Indiana and is likely to live and or work in the Fort Wayne area. This could be someone who works with you, goes to church with you, or shops at the same stores that you do. So, that is a lot of information right there. To sum it all up real quick, the FBI was looking for, in 2004, a white guy in his 40s or 50s, circumcised, lives in or works near Fort Wayne, possibly drives a blue or green pickup truck, likely has low income, has a persistent obsession and sexual desire for prepubescent girls between the ages of 5 and 10, has kidnapped, raped, and killed before, but could likely stick to lesser assaults from here on out. Another interesting thing that they suggest is that the killer could have a condition called dysgraphia. People with dysgraphia have problems with legible handwriting, inconsistent spacing, poor spatial planning, as in letters might start very large and then get small, poor spelling, uh, and issues writing out and completing thoughts or thinking about a sentence and writing it at the same time. People with this disorder may also spell the same word many different ways, which could be why he spelled April's name correctly the first time and incorrectly later. This may be a stretch, but it would give some answers to the curious ways that his notes and the barn message were written. Shortly after the FBI and the card team stepped in with their official profile on this guy, the TV show America's Most Wanted aired an episode to give some light to April's case. For those of you who might not know, America's Most Wanted was a TV show hosted by John Walsh, and basically what they do is they give a description of what happened, what kind of crime was committed, what police have released to the public, everything we know about the case, and they encourage viewers to reach out to local law enforcement if they know anything about the case or if they suspect anyone would be able to commit this kind of crime. After the airing of this episode of America's Most Wanted, dozens of tips came in, and many of them were in the Fort Wayne or northeastern part of Indiana. That was in 2009, and it took almost three years to look into those leads, and they seemed like good leads at the time, but none of them matched up, and none of them brought them any closer to justice for April. So, in 2012, America's Most Wanted came back and did a follow-up episode, and police revealed a little bit more information about the case in hopes that it would draw in more valid leads. It wasn't until America's Most Wanted that police revealed that photo of the sex toy I told you guys about, the one that was found near April's body, and they did that in hopes that someone might recognize it. Investigators often do this, and they will release some information, but not the whole truth, because they have to hold information back in order to avoid false confessions and to use as leeway in case they actually find the guy. But at this point, they were desperate for any new information, so they went ahead and released the information about the sex toy. Police also revealed that at one point, they had over 500 suspects in this case, and they had since narrowed it down to under 100. But no names have been released from this 100, and I tried to look online, but it's mostly just a lot of speculation. It's, it's nothing that was officially released. And just like the rest of the case had gone, upon reveal of this new information on America's Most Wanted... The case goes nowhere. It isn't until 2016 that officials have something new to release. During this time, between 2012-ish and 2016, investigators began working with a genetic genealogy company called Parabon. Parabon specializes in genetic phenotyping. There's a lot that goes into genetic phenotyping, but the most simple way to put it is that they create 3D composite sketches of the suspect that is solely based on the genetics found in the suspect's DNA 
rather than a sketch based on an eyewitness account, which can often be faulty or inaccurate or biased. These sketches have scientific proof that back them up within degrees of certainty. Based on the suspect's DNA, Parabon could conclude the general skin tone of the suspect, hair color, the fact that he was likely to have hazel eyes as opposed to green eyes or blue eyes, approximate height, face shape, and so on. This is all based solely on the DNA, so each detail has a percentage of certainty to it. For example, they could say, there's a 75% chance of this person having brown hair based on the genetics, but that doesn't completely rule out blonde hair. So, it's not an exact image of the killer, but it does help them immensely when trying to narrow down the killer's qualities. I'm going to post a picture of Parabon's phenotype photo on the Instagram page as well. It's actually a photo of the eyewitness sketch from 1988 compared to the phenotype that Parabon released. And they actually released two phenotype photos. One for what he might have looked like in 1988, and then another one is an age progression of the first. At this time, hundreds of men's DNA had been taken in an attempt to match it up to this guy's DNA and find the killer. His DNA was being ran through prison systems to see if he had been arrested between 1988 and 2016, and nothing. The police still had no solid leads. After using Parabon for the snapshot sketch, and in light of the Golden State Killer and East Area Rapist case that had just been solved in California, April's investigators also sent the killer's DNA to a genealogy company called GEDmatch. This company works to identify relatives of the person who submits their DNA, much like what Ancestry DNA or 23andMe does. Shortly after submitting his DNA to GEDmatch, investigators got a call saying that they would have their guy in a matter of days. Genealogist Cece Moore was able to work backwards and narrow the killer down to one of two brothers. From these two brothers, police chose which one best fit their profile and began watching this guy. They were able to go through some trash that was left outside of his home, and they collected a used condom from the trash. And after processing the DNA, it was a match. A perfect match to the DNA that they had been holding on to for 30 years. DNA that they also had collected in 2004. They were finally able to put a name and a face to April Tinsley's killer. 59-year-old John D. Miller of Grable, Indiana, which is really close to Fort Wayne. On July 15th of 2018, police went to John Miller's home and asked him to come into the station for questioning. After advising him of his Miranda rights, they asked him if he knew what this was all in regards to. His response? April Tinsley. During his interview, Miller confessed to kidnapping April, raping her, choking her in his trailer, sodomizing her, and dumping her body on the side of the road. He was officially charged with murder, child molestation, and confinement. On July 19th of 2018, he pleaded not guilty, which makes no sense to me because he had no defense whatsoever. But on December 7th of 2018, he changed his plea to guilty. The date of his trial was originally scheduled for February of 2019, but got moved up to December 21st of 2018. John D. Miller was sentenced to 80 years in prison, 50 years for the murder of April, and another 30 years for child molestation. And you guys want to know something else that I think is absolutely crazy? Remember how I said the police at one point had a list of 500 men on their list of possible suspects? John D. Miller's name was never on any of those lists. 
He kept out of the light as much as possible. He never got arrested. He never murdered anyone again. It's just so crazy to me that they were searching and searching for so long, and he was there the entire time. In 2015, April's mom, Janet, helped in the construction of a memorial garden in Fort Wayne and named it April's Garden. And in 2018, a memorial walk was hosted in Fort Wayne from April's Garden to Fairfield Elementary in memory of April. Guys, what do you think about this case? I think it's one of the most heartbreaking cases, but it had one of the best endings in my opinion. These killers better be scared. Left and right, these old unsolved murders are getting justice because of the use of these new genealogy testings. I mentioned the Golden State murders getting solved this way, but recently the Dr. No murders also got solved this way. This is proof that you can't run from your past forever. One way or another, these guys are going to get found out. Please feel free to comment on my Instagram what you thought about this case, any questions that you may have about it, or what case you want to hear next. Also, my episodes are available on Apple Podcasts now, in addition to SoundCloud, at True Crime Tourist Podcast. I would love if you left me a review or a comment. Finally, follow my Instagram and Twitter pages at True Crime Taurus. That's True Crime, T-A-U-R-U-S. Thanks so much, and until next time.